Okay, friends, a little podcast update for you. We're about to return with a steady stream of live recorded conversations, typically one journalist sitting down each time with a new scholar or cleric. But it's August, and we realized you may just want to see Oppenheimer or Barbie or some other favorite new show. So we thought this new bit of Faith Angle commentary from a brilliant journalist and a Hollywood showrunner might be well-timed. Last spring, Christianity Today ran a pair of articles about Beef, the popular Netflix dark comedy, which gets a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes and completed its first season this June, because the show included a scene that's really just raw religion. In the third episode of the show, Steve Yun's character, Danny Cho, enters a Korean church, is welcomed by its pastor, and breaks down during a full rendition of Oh Come to the Altar, a song from Elevation Worship. It's linked for you in the show notes. That clip's imbued with vulnerability, rawness, a sense of breakdown, and surrender. It's good religion, even if there are plenty of examples of bad religion that we see at the movies or on TV. We asked today's speakers to talk about how the arts can help us transcend some of the worries of contemporary society, from polarization and entrenched tribalism, to our massive decline in public trust, to informational rabbit holes, to other discouraging and sometimes heartbreaking pieces of news. How do stories help us renew? Alyssa Wilkinson has covered film and culture since 2016 for Vox Media. She's been a prolific film critic since a decade prior to coming to Vox, and her works appeared in places like Rolling Stone, Bon Appetit, Washington Post, Vulture, Roger Ebert, The Atlantic, Books and Culture, The Los Angeles Review of Books, Pacific Standard, and elsewhere. Alyssa is a member of the New York Film Critics Circle and the National Society of Film Critics. And in 2017-18, she was the Art of Nonfiction Writing Fellow at the Sundance Institute. Her books include Salty, Lessons on Eating, Drinking, and Living from Revolutionary Women, and a forthcoming book, We Tell Ourselves Stories. She also co-authored a book on the idea of apocalypse, and she holds an MA in Humanities and Social Thought from NYU. Brad Winters, who speaks immediately following Alyssa, is a writer, producer, and showrunner. Do you know this term? I didn't. A showrunner is the daily onset boss. In Brad's case, that means he's helped direct or oversee TV dramas, including Oz, where he started his career as a writer, Boss, The Americans, The Sinner, and Berlin Station. Brad's also the creator of an on-screen comic book project called America Town, about the world's first enclave of American immigrants who live and work abroad in a dystopian near future. He contributes regularly to the Arts and Faith blog, Good Letters, at Patheos, a site that gets over 11 million monthly page views. So we'll hear Alyssa's reflections about how faith and Hollywood relate to one another, followed by Brad's take as an onset practitioner about how he's tried to stay true. Thanks for listening. I have a series of observations about the direction of Hollywood in particular as it relates to religion and also how trends in Hollywood are changing the way that we experience film and the TV and communal experience. I want to say up front that I've been writing about religion and pop culture both in religious media. I was at Christianity Today for many years and then in the mainstream media for a long time. And it's kind of helped me formulate 
an idea of what do we mean when we talk about religion, and I'm going to use film a lot because that's my <coughs> genre, but I always also mean TV. And there's sort of three buckets I think about. There are movies that are marketed toward the religious as a market category. It's a market segment. It is, as Brad said, a market segment that Hollywood kind of realized existed in 2004 when The Passion of the Christ came out. So I think I just want to underline that that remains the highest grossing R-rated film of all time in absolute numbers. And that came out in 2004. So that's wild. And the reason for that was that the studio smartly targeted churches and pastors as blocks. And they churches bought out whole theaters. I, that's how I saw it. And there was a real sense, if you were a Christian at that time, that if you didn't go see The Passion of the Christ, you were, like, not committed enough to your faith. Because, like, yeah, it's violent, but, like, Jesus actually went through it, right? And you just have to go watch it. It was a very effective <laughs> marketing tactic. Uh, and it's also a market segment that doesn't go see R-rated films much, which typically don't make, they make, like, half of what their PG-13 cousins make. So that happened, and every studio suddenly had a faith-based arm, which really meant, like, sort of nebulously Christian content is really what they meant by that. And that happened for about 10 years and this is right at the height of independent film kind of getting into the mainstream as well. And then God's Not Dead came out in 2014. And God's Not Dead, which you can read my extensive rants on the subject if you want, but God's Not Dead was shot for $2 million and made $60 million. And so that birthed Pure Flix and a new era. And even though every subsequent God's Not Dead movie has like halved that <laughs> return, it's still built Pure Flix. And if you don't know, there's like a very thriving sort of entire studio and streamer that is out there that's like an alt-universe Netflix, basically, for Christian content. Okay, so that's one market category. But the second thing that I think about when I think about religion in film is a lot of what Brad was just talking about, which is religion as a subject in some way. So we can think about The Chosen is a good example extremely popular. The CW just picked up this show, which has done three seasons on VidAngel, which is like a platform that most people don't know exists either. The CW just picked it up to have rights. So they know that this is a hugely popular show, which is about Jesus and his disciples. And I haven't watched it, but I've heard from sources I would never expect that it's good. So I probably need to get around to it. So that's religion as the topic of the show, or at least a major topic. And you can think of lots of other examples, I'm sure, some of which I think are very, very good, and some of which are maybe less good. One show that everyone seemed to watch, I think, because it came out on Netflix in March 2020, <laughs> was Unorthodox, um, mm -hmm. which was like a four-episode drama about a young woman leaving an ultra-Orthodox community. That did very, very well. And so, and there's a lot of that kind of thing where the religion is the subject. And then there's this third category, and it's honestly the one that I'm most interested in, which is art that is looking at religious questions. Maybe it's not specifically about a religion, but it's asking religious questions. I think the best example of this, and probably the best show ever made, was The Leftovers, which was on HBO and is sort of sort of about like what if the rapture happened, but it's not at all. That's not really what it is at all. It's something entirely different. And by the, if you've watched it, it's like completely devastating, but incredible. And by the end of it, you know, the characters have confronted many questions 
that religions seek to answer, and the audience is led into those questions as well. So you've kind of got religion as a market category, religion as subject matter, and religion as sort of the inquiry of the work itself. And those actually have to be talked about in three separate ways because we're not talking about the same thing often when we're having conversations about religion and pop culture. So one other observation I want to make about that sort of in the passion, God's not dead, two important moments. A third important moment was in, I believe it was 2016. I can't believe I don't know the year. I think it was 2016. Um, Martin Scorsese's Silence came out. Maybe it was 2017, which is based on a kind of a classic work of Christian fiction by Shisaku Endo, you know, a widely read book from the 70s, I believe, about priests in the 1700s going to Japan and sort of encountering some really deep and disturbing questions. Anyhow, it's an incredible movie. And when it came out, the studio pretty much buried it. And it was very confusing. Why would you bury a movie by Martin Scorsese starring Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield and Liam Neeson? Like, why would you do that? And it turned out, sort of back-channeling, I started to hear that the studio was very worried that it was going to be protested the way The Last Temptation of Christ was 25 years earlier, also Scorsese. And so they still had this perception that the way people approached Last Temptation was going to be the way that they approach silence, which actually felt like a very odd perception to me because that's simply not the kind of thing that happens with movies anymore. They don't even kind of matter as much. But that is something that like executives are thinking about in Hollywood and sort of navigating that. So I think that's all very interesting. Okay, so I have three buckets of observations I want to make. The first one is sort of trends in storytelling and voices in Hollywood and just things that I've seen happening over the like 15 years that I've been writing about film. One is that in the storytelling vein, the two kind of like big heavy hitters money-wise have been superheroes, obviously, and apocalypses and dystopia. And it's not just because I wrote a book on that, but you know, those are like the two ways that you kind of make a very big successful Thing. And it's interesting to me that both of those, I would say, are exploring religious questions always. Not that the apocalypse itself is a religious thing, but it always leads people to inquiries about things like, what is the meaning of life? What do we owe to one another? What does a just and good society look like? What's really going on beneath the surface? So that's a big, that's just interesting to me that as we've been moving into the 21st century, that's really where Hollywood has gone. Also, there's been a move to being more inclusive in the voices that are telling stories, right? It is true that the vast majority of Hollywood's writers and directors have been white men, mostly of some kind of Episcopalian background, right? That's, that's kind of, they're all wasps. They've always been wasps. And there's been lots of movement towards trying to change that. It's, it's a drop in the bucket really. But you can see it in Hollywood, certainly. So people from different, well, people from different gender backgrounds, people from different ethnic backgrounds, you know, people with different life experiences. And there's programs at the studios to bring more people in. The Oscars, starting this year, I believe, have some really, like, very basic new rules about qualifying for Best Picture. And those rules include explicit things about having diversity programs at your studio, or was your movie all the top people on the movie, a white guy, then you can't qualify for best picture. So this is new this year. People are losing their minds, of course, but it's, it's actually 
very basic rules that most studios qualify for, of course, because they wrote the rules. But that's just a signal that that's something they're trying to move towards. It feels like what I'm seeing is that when religious experience is involved in a TV show or movie, it's often contextualized within the culture of the character. So, for instance, there's a show called We Are Lady Parts. Has anyone seen this show? Oh, okay. It's wonderful. Have you seen it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's wonderful. I mean, it's, so it's a, it's a comedy TV show. It's on Peacock, I think. It's British. And it's about four Muslim women in London, all of whom have very different experiences. And they form a punk band. That's the name of the, the band's name is We Are Lady Parts. The show is just basically about like their friendships, their lives, and their punk band. It's not about like what it is to be Muslim in London. Like that's not the subject of the show, but it's very much foregrounded because that's their lives, right? Or we can think of beef when, you know, a Korean church service comes up. It's not like this is a show about the Korean church. It's just this is a show where, of course, somebody goes to church because that's what his character would would do. Actually, this show, Kim's Convenience, which is on Netflix, a Canadian show, also spends a lot of time at church for very similar reasons. Like, of course, these characters are at church because this is that's who they are. That's what they would be doing. I also see this in the movies a lot. So the movie Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig's movie, which I is incredible, spends like quite a bit of time with Catholicism, in part because the main character is in Catholic school, but also because the voice of wisdom in the movie is the nun who runs the school and she quotes Simone Weil and does all these things and it's very it's very interesting. But it's all kind of inside the context of the characters, not the point of the show. And I think a lot of that comes from having people with a more diverse set of perspectives in the writer's room or, or behind the uh, keyboard. Another aspect of this that has to do with the voices, and again, I'm really not praising Hollywood for its diversity because it's like this much, you know, that's happened, but it's something. But Netflix in particular brings a lot of international content to subscribers in a way that wasn't happening for Americans. Americans don't like to watch things with subtitles. And somehow Netflix has managed to break a couple of world shows toward American audiences. And world cinema and TV tends to be a little more plugged into religion as a subject just because it's often more embedded in the cultural context. So I think that's really interesting. So the second category is business, which I'm just using to talk about some shifts in the business that are having an impact on this topic. One is obviously, well, it's Hollywood. Every shift in Hollywood is due to new technology. Like that's always the case, uh, whether it was the development of you know, film that literally could show you moving images, the sound, color, right, all this stuff. So the big development recently, of course, was streaming. And streaming has altered the landscape in ways that we're only kind of starting to understand, I think, as far as like what gets made, who watches it, who gets to make it. This, of course, also, we were talking about this yesterday, means that the business suddenly has giant piles of data about its viewers that it never had before and knows how to target them in almost creepily specific ways, right? The, the Netflix recommendation algorithm is really wild or what TikTok shows you is really crazy. And they're sitting on this pile of data. And this means that they can actually tell if people are watching things and where they stop watching them and what they're interested in and which things they go back and rewatch. And that makes it easier to 
give data that says, actually, we should make this show because we know that most of our viewers will watch this show or that many of our viewers, or maybe it'll be a demographic that we want to pull in. This is entirely why the CW picked up The Chosen. Or we can think of a show like Yellowstone, which is hugely popular across America and watched by very few coastal elite types, right? And, and now they really know who's watching it, why, when they watch it, what day they watch it, when they stop, what they rewind. But on the flip side, I do think that the obvious thing that this causes is less of a communal narrative for huge groups of people, right? You, you're more targeted, you watch your own thing, and there's fewer shows that break across demographic lines. I was just looking this up. So especially in media, we had the perception that everyone in the world was watching Succession. And the finale episode of Succession that just aired had its largest viewership ever, which was 2.9 million people. I believe that's air date plus 48 hours or something because it's on HBO Max. The finale of Friends had 52.2 million viewers. And that was, that was like 20 years, not quite 20 years ago. So that's a huge, huge shift. I even looked up Yellowstone's fifth season premiere had 12.1. That's a monster hit now. And Game of Thrones finale a few years ago was 19.3 million. And that's like the biggest show, you know, of our time. So from 52.2 down to Game of Thrones not quite getting 20 million people is massive. And that changes everything. It changes how much money is being thrown at different things. It changes what people are looking for. And it changes how we talk about it which leads to a third thing that I'm going to talk about in a second. But that also is tied to the drop in theatrical viewership, of course, for films. You know, theaters are kind of the closest to churches or houses of worship that we have in a secular space in that you enter it together, you sit there for two hours, you kind of give yourself over to the experience, something literally larger than you, and you respond to it. And if you've ever had like a really great theatrical viewing experience... Like you never forget it because it is akin to religious experience. I will re- never forget going to see Get Out before anyone had seen it. it was the first press screening. And we were all, ex- the last movie that Jordan Peele had done was Keanu with the, this like stoner movie with the cat that talks. So that's what we were expecting. And about three minutes into that movie, you realize like, oh, no, no, this is a different kind of a movie. This is going to be awesome. And the feel, just like the electricity you could feel in the room. But you can't have that experience watching a screener at home. You can get excited. It's just not the same thing. We know this. But it does change the way, again, that we're experiencing art together as a culture. I can talk for hours about AI, so I'm not even going to. But I do, the question that's most in my mind right now about AI, besides is it going to take my job, is will people want to watch things that they know are generated through AI? And I don't have an answer for that. I don't know. But it does feel like a fundamental shift in the question of what makes us human and why do we touch art. So that's that's that. And then the, there's labor issues in Hollywood. I don't know that any of that is explicitly tied to religious concerns. But one thing that is, is that the way movies make their money now is mainly in China, honestly. Um, it's So every Hollywood blockbuster is made to be exported in a much bigger way than it used to be. There's an incredible book called, oh boy, I think it's called Red Carpet. I interviewed the writer of it, who's a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, And it's about the history of Hollywood and China's involvement over the past, like basically since 2000. And it is a fascinating read if you want to understand how the business is changing. 
But a thing that happens when you export is you have to work with those countries' censors, right? So certain kinds of content isn't going to fly in, in Iran, and it's not going to fly in China, but it might be different. <laughs> and so, and religious content is actually one of those things that they have to think about. Or if you've ever noticed, Disney loves to get really excited about how it has like an openly gay character or something, and they'll be, they'll trumpet it. And then you see the movie and you're like, where? Right. And it's because they have to make it tiny so they can just lift it out without any problems to be on like Emirates flights, for instance. They can't. They won't allow any gay content. So that's really reshaping what gets big money. So an independent filmmaker might have more resources now. Tech is cheaper. You have more ways to distribute your movie. And you can make incredible movies about things that matter deeply to you. And on the flip side, if you want to work in the big budgets, there's a lot of market pressures that are, are happening. OK, so the last category is audience. And that has to do with contemplation and meditative states that we kind of get in with art being obliterated. But I think the more important one and the one that we really need to be thinking about when we're thinking about religion is fandom. Because fandoms, which is just a community, well, it sounds like it should be just a community of fans, they really are religion now. Like, no exaggeration at all. So this is like like a fandom that forms around, um, well, Star Wars is a pretty good example, I think, because, you know, I like Star Wars. I enjoy Star Wars. I don't know if I'd call myself a fan, but like, I think it's fun. I also know people who like and enjoy Star Wars and have characters and read the books and I'm describing my husband now, right? But the fandom is a group of people who, for whom that is their identity. I am a Star Wars fan. It is their identity to the extent that they send, I mean, poor Brian Johnson after he made The Last Jedi, just death threats, doxing. I mean, I got long emails from people who were like, I hope he gets cancer. Like, and it's, it has to do with ownership of the narrative and the property, feeling like they deserve to receive something from the work or the, or the person. You know, the, this isn't movies, but Taylor Swift's fandom, for instance, like have spent weeks litigating with themselves as to whether they should go see her in concert because she's dating, or she isn't anymore, but she's dating that Maddie Healy. And they're like, oh, we don't like him. So maybe I get rid of my concert tickets, right? And it all sounds really fringy, but it's not. It's like, it's actually driving the entertainment industry at this point. And more importantly, it's filling that gap that we keep talking about for a lot of people who aren't attached to institutions, maybe are quite isolated for various reasons or feel isolation. And they maybe they just like, I don't know, Justice League, right? And they just like it and they get on Twitter and they find the community and it kind of spins itself up into a religious frenzy. And everything in life is now, you know, we're, we pour over the text, we look for the hidden meanings, we write our own versions of the text, right? Fan fiction. We go to conventions and things. These things that used to feel like something that just nerds did now is pervasive to the point where it can be scary to be on the internet if you are going to write about Batman, right? Like, because you're going to get, I get death threats for poorly reviewing a movie that isn't very good. Like when Batman versus Superman came out, whatever that stupid movie was. Uh, that's frightening, but that kind of fervor is indicative of something going on in the culture um, and how, 
how these fandoms become identity for the people involved with them. That shifts community, that shifts how people interact with the narratives, how the creators then kind of work backwards with those IPs and try to please the fandom because that's where the money comes from. And it is a movement that scares me a little bit. Okay, I have two, two things left to say. One is there is this parallel thing that I have been writing about recently, which is that the rise of documentary series as cheaply made but very lucrative entertainment has led to cult documentaries becoming a real and religious documentaries. So there's like all these docs that have been coming out about like Hillsong. There's like two documentaries about Hillsong and the rise and fall of that. There was a Jerry Falwell one that wasn't very good. <laughs> the Duggar one that just came out about the Duggar family and Bill Gothard and fundamentalism um, in Christianity in the kind of turn of the century. That one apparently is Amazon's most watched documentary series ever. It just came out two weeks ago. So that's interesting. And then there's also, for whatever reason, and it's actually a bit creepy, I think there's like a over fascination <laughs> with LDS communities, some of which it feels out of proportion, I think, is, is the thing. And so I don't know what the companies are latching on to exactly to, as their determiner. But for instance, there is a, quite a good, I think, doc, at least from a documentary perspective about Warren Jeffs and the whole thing that went down with the fundamentalist LDS church and the government raided it and whatever that's on Netflix. And that one has done extraordinarily well. There's been a lot of other shows like that. And there's also kind of a similar rise in things about ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities. And that just strikes me as weird and interesting as a social phenomenon that people are kind of invested in watching documentary series, many hours, about other people's religions or sometimes their own, but often other people's. But it also, on the flip side, feels parallel to true crime, which is sort of about like bad things that happens and then maybe how to avoid them. And that all, I think, it shows that there's a market for that content and what that means about people who maybe haven't had experience alongside religion and are only receiving that information through docs about how crazy religion is, has, I think, pretty big implications that really it's only arisen in the last couple of years. It's fun. It's a privilege to talk about this subject because it's one that I actually don't get to talk about <laughs> at all in my workplace. You know, for me, I thought, given the prompt questions, I wanted to start by taking kind of a more oblique angle or in camera terms, even a wide one to these questions, given our very obvious conditioning to view these sort of colossal counterparts of Hollywood and religion as, you know, as these sort of cultural nemeses that have little in common except their sort of mutual distrust. But I've long had the conviction as, as a Christian who sort of works in that most Babylonian workplace of all, <laughs> Hollywood, that there actually is in my estimation, maybe no place on earth that is sort of more spiritual in concentrated terms than the film and TV business in, in, in LA. And, you know, the very name Los Angeles denotes a place that belongs to the angels. And I would even go a step further to use the word religious in terms of Hollywood, not in the sense of organized religion, of course, though that really is there aplenty. 
But when you think about it, you know, this is a system which feeds and sort of feeds upon the human instinct, not only to worship, but to be worshiped like no other. And it's an industry which really doesn't just traffic in transcendence, but whose economy is sort of built upon transcendence. When you think about the word transcend etymologically, meaning to climb across, which is what the constant content of film and TV attempt to satisfy that relentless human need to climb across everyday circumstance, both in horizontal and on the vertical plane as well. So in this light, it sounds a little cheeky, but I kind of tend to view Hollywood as a Vatican City in spite of itself and kind of in spite of its the great pride it takes in its badge of secularity. And I don't say that in any way as kind of an embattled Christian with any ax to grind against Hollywood. And in fact, actually, it really kind of fascinates me to no end when you look at it in this, in this sort of cultural anthropological lens. And in preparing this talk, I was reminded of a 1998 essay for Image Journal, which is a quarterly journal of arts and faith, which Alyssa and I have both been affiliated with. And in this issue, which was titled Screening Mystery, and it was dedicated entirely to the film business, the Dominican priest and scholar Michael Morris gave substance to this notion that I had when I first sort of entered the business as a nascent TV writer and a future producer showrunner. And Morris opens the essay in ancient Egypt, where this splendid temple built in honor of Ramses II featured his image among the gods to spectacular scale in the sanctuary's darkened interior, a space which, when it was, which was constructed in a way that when illuminated by the sun, it did so to sort of dazzling effect. This effect found its latter-day analog according to Morris in the movie houses in the, in the grand heyday of Hollywood in the 1920s and 30s, whose architectural heritage was explicitly Egyptian in their oversized grandeur, their golden iconography, and really their sort of blatant branding as, as such. This sort of pseudo-numinous pop phenomenon, Grauman's Egyptian theater, being the, in, in Hollywood, being the first of many to sprout up across the country in the 20s and 30s, wasn't the only parallel, as Morris explains, as the studio heads kind of ran the business like high priests charged with mediation by way of media between the laity in this kind of veritable pantheon of silver screen celebrities. So going to the movies wasn't really like a pilgrimage. It, it was a pilgrimage to pay homage to these newly fashioned gods of the modern era who could be found behind a curtain, just like in the Holy of Holies and the first and second temples of ancient Jerusalem and its Near Eastern antecedents. And so I find this to be really a wonderful lens at which to look at Hollywood and really understand that they have so much more in common, these sort of twin pillars of religion and entertainment in our contemporary American society. Today, of course, we really have nothing but a drab cineplex for the movie-going ritual. And more often than not, these days, a, a, a pilgrimage to nowhere, except on the small screen of one's TV laptop, or even phone. But nevertheless, the heritage reminds us that 
The age of cinema might have been a grand invention, but it wasn't a pure creation without this sort of ancient DNA. And none of this really should be surprising to us because the evidence abounds by now that theater has its primal roots in religious ceremony. So Aristotle and his dramatic concept of catharsis was taken directly from the tradition of ritualistic sacrifice whose literal lifeblood was the liturgical catharsis which theater attempted to emulate by way of drama. And as the French critic and theorist René Girard put it, once upon a time, a temple and an altar on which the victim was sacrificed were substituted for the original act of collective violence. Now there is an amphitheater and a stage. And now today there are screens everywhere, big or small, small enough to fit in one's pocket. So for all of these cultural parallels between the domains of Hollywood and religion, why all the apparent enmity between them? Is it their competing claims on the human heart and imagination? Is it their divergent evaluations of the human condition? One seeing fit to give us a constant supply of fictional heroes and superheroes. The other, a savior whose miraculous feats from creation to birth, healing and resurrection defy any of the illusions that film and TV have to offer. And again, I'm really speaking specifically to Christianity here because that's my tradition. And because as we well know, it kind of has the singular distinction of being very much uh, the enemy in question on one side of today's culture wars. Of course, it's much more complicated than that. It's a very politicized Christianity that I'm talking about. But I've come to wonder over time, is the apparent enmity itself kind of an illusion? And this is what I really have come to believe after almost more than 25 years in the business. As, as Josh stated, my first job in Hollywood was HBO's first one hour drama, Oz set inside a maximum security prison whose cast of characters included two people of the cloth. Uh, there was the prison chaplain, Father Mukata, played by B.D. Wong, and the nun psychologist, Sister Peter Marie Raimondo, played by Rita Moreno. The show's creator, Tom Fontana, is a Jesuit-educated trailblazer in TV whose previous shows had included St. Elsewhere and Homicide, and with a couple of Emmys under his belt, when the freedoms of cable fell in Tom's lap before anyone else's, he was determined to take on matters of faith and religion as much as murder, mayhem, and the general brutality of prison existence. <laughs> it wasn't really all downhill from there for me in terms of working on a show that could explicitly deal with religious themes in a mainstream drama. And I have had the good fortune of working on a couple of others along the way. In 2008, I worked on uh, NBC's Kings, a modern retelling of the King David story. And in 2013, I worked on USA's Dig, a thriller set in Israel about clandestine efforts to bring back the very temple sacrifice referred to by Rene Girard and with it, the apocalypse in the process. <laughs> Dig was certainly one of the more unlikely shows to have ever existed on TV in its short-lived existence. But really, I wish, I, I wish we could have a uh, projection here because nothing captures my feelings about the intersection of faith and Hollywood than a photo I have of our base camp right outside the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, 
where you could see sort of film trailers parked right below the retaining wall. It was wild. So these three shows constitute kind of a sporadic hat trick in my overall run from 1998 until now. I would include the Americans in that show's commendable exploration of the daughter's turn toward faith, but that storyline actually began after my work on the first season, so I can't take any credit for that. <laughs> when I first ventured beyond Oz and my working with Tom Fontana into the writer's rooms of Big Bag Hollywood, I did so kind of as in a, a Christian embarrassed to wear my faith in the writer's room. It would really sound silly, even offensive, to claim minority status as a white guy in a business run largely by white men. But upon entering my first writer's room, I knew well enough that no way to win a popularity contest there would be to admit one was a Christian. Plus, I grew up in the Episcopal Church among the frozen chosen, as we were dubbed. <laughs> and so I had none of that sort of evangelical fire to really thaw my self-consciousness <laughs> in uh, possibly hostile territory. But at the same time, I started blogging for Image, which was uh, a chance for me to speak openly online about matters of faith, while at the same time sort of keeping my mouth shut at work. And in one post, I took issue with what struck me as the generally condescending portrayal of Christian characters on screen who seem to either be monsters on the one hand, losers on the other, or some kind of freakish hybrid in the middle. A reader took issue with me and with this post, took me to task with, with my, uh, for my blunt categorization and gave a long list of characters in TV and film who, who sort of defied that. And so I came away thinking that, wow, I'm probably not fit to make such judgments. But I also came away thinking, I know I'm also still right and to a degree. And that if I were to sort of poll this room, myself included, for favorite characters in TV and film whose Christian faith religious faith might define them in, in a winning way, we probably have a bit of a hamstrung exercise on our hands. You know, aside from notable exceptions like the Americans and now Beef, how often do films or shows take the life of faith seriously in a character, characters who are normal, likable, and to use that sort of favorite buzzword in Hollywood, relatable? <laughs> more likely will be treated to the preacher in The Last of Us, in which sort of the most heinous <laughs> element of all in that gut-churning show, spoiler alert, cannibalism, is reserved for a Christian villain who also suffers the most vicious killing of the season. And I say that as a fan of the show. I, I, I really thought it was amazing in many ways. But really, I'm very careful to not take up that ax to grind. And to that end, I plan to ask Alyssa <laughs> about this point and how much she agrees or disagrees with that categorization. These days, I've, I've grown more comfortable with age and frankly with just seniority in the writer's room as an executive producer when it comes to sort of identification as a Christian if the subject comes up. I suspected early on that my self-consciousness about the matter had a lot more to do with my hangups than anyone else's. And kind of like Trey said yesterday, I have found colleagues to be generally receptive, even curious, sometimes hiding behind 
tall stacks of baggage just like me. But I will say that the extreme polarization brought about by the culture wars in these past uh, several years has made me very reticent and careful at times all over again for different reasons about sort of speaking to that matter, you know, identifying as a, as a Christian, as a person of faith, um, just because of how fraught uh, those issues are and all the more so, you know, in a workplace. But, you know, these partisan horrors aside, the studios know that there is a huge demographic out there quite hungry for religious themed content, be it straight up biblical fare like The Chosen, or shows like Beef with a more nuanced and complex spiritual angle. How to service that appetite is really a leading question for their programming models going forward. And as the streaming market really seeks to balance broad appeal with greater and greater possibility for niche audiences. And it's easy to think that this agenda is all about the bottom line and profits for their shareholders. That's True. Uh, ever since, you know, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ squarely put a cross and a dollar sign in the eyes of every studio head running uh, the business since then. And they are perennially challenged and vexed about how to deliver more material like that in today's very fraught society. But really, I say that partially little tongue-in-cheek and my and a recent experience that I had on a, a pilot project this past year tells a different story which I'll just share briefly in closing. Commissioned by Universal Television to co-write the first installment in a prospective biblical anthology series, I set out with my creative partners on the project to create an eight-episode limited series about the nativity. Our goal was and still is to kind of thread the needle with a show that remains faithful to the source material in the New Testament, but at the same time really holds its own and stands on its own two feet in this era of peak TV. Mary and Joseph wouldn't be just sort of glowing, distant icons in a glowing manger, but a husband and wife mired in a riveting marital drama. And the, the wise men or the magi not these avuncular wise men as we're so used to seeing them, but really formidable mystics steeped in the Babylonian occult. Fortunately, the studio had the same goal as we did. And while I know I'm not supposed to say anything nice about them while I'm on strike, I really can't compliment them and their partners at Peacock enough for how helpful they were and how much they helped enhance the project from pitch to outlined to script. Here was a group of executives with little exposure to the Gospels, as far as I could tell, whose main objective was just like ours and to help us deliver the show that we sought to deliver and sort of live up to these standards of excellence. And when a Hollywood notes call in 2022 involving Christians, Jews, atheists, agnostics, who knows what else in the next leaves me feeling that a pilot script about the birth of Jesus Christ was all the better for it. I came away from that really feeling a kind of a new and different sense of hope for myself and for the business. So where are we headed? I, I, I don't know, but that might be something that Alyssa and I also talk about and maybe in answering some of your questions. The pilot script that I just mentioned, it falls squarely 
into the genre of straight up biblical fare. And while it's crucial that we keep striving to help bring that genre out of the choir stalls where it has far too often preached and into the upper echelons of great drama, that's hardly the extent of the job. Of true urgency, as I see it, is the need for sort of contemporary Christian characters, characters of any faith in that relatable, and to use another Hollywood buzzword, rootable vein. They can and should be as flawed as any other characters on screen, but can they please also be smart, resourceful, talented, funny, and ultimately as complex and complicated as we want our main characters to be? I can think of little that might actually help bridge the gaps, even a tiny bit, in today's culture wars as this kind of approach in TV drama. And I think if I held a high-ranking position in today's church, I might want to come up with a ministry and devote untold resources to just simply help educate, train aspiring Christian screenwriters with no strings attached, no proselytizing agenda, but just help really close that gap. And I think it just goes without saying, I mean, look at how effective the LGBTQ movement has been in this regard. You know, having long suffered the stereotypes that rendered them from in the extremes from either brooding social outcast to flamboyant bon vivant or quirky sidekick, today they have the likes of that very beautiful and moving third episode of The Last of Us to mark the strides that they have made. So to close, in the introduction to The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, recently deceased pastor and author Tim Keller quotes literary critic Stanley Fish, who was asked how to account for the rise of Christian professors in the academy despite its general secularism. Fish states, when Jacques Derrida died, I was called by a reporter who wanted to know what would succeed high theory in the triumvirate of race, gender, and class as the center of intellectual energy in the academy. I answered like a shot, religion. Fish's forecast, it seems, has yet to manifest, and that familiar triumvirate appears to be more front and center than ever, of course. But with the warp speed arrival of AI into everyday headlines alongside those leading social issues, I won't be surprised if Fish proves right in ways he did not see coming. Nor will I be surprised, in fact, if it isn't long before Josh and Faith Engel Forum are hosting panels on the much feared role of AI, not just in Hollywood storytelling, as the Writers Guild is determined to prevent currently on our strike, not just in journalism as well, as it pertains to all of you, but even in matters of faith, given we've already seen a recent church service in Germany led by a chatbot and attended by hundreds. <laughs> and so now that a potentially common enemy is at their doorstep, perhaps these cultural nemeses, these antagonists of Hollywood and religion can team up at long last to find their innate common ground and combat the coming desecration to both camps. And wouldn't that make a great movie? <laughs> Thank you. Faith Angle connects leading journalists with leading critics and practitioners. Thanks for listening.